Welcome back to the Brothers Book Club Podcast. We are back today with a book club episode, that is, for clarification's sake, an analytical deep dive into a book. Today we'll be covering Parable of the Sower, which is by Octavia Butler, kind of a legendary science fiction, I guess I would call the science fiction. Anyway, she was a legendary science fiction writer and author. Uh, joining me today on the other end is podcast co-host and ponderer amanda hello <laughs> no, no, well-known uh local ponder <laughs> yes thanks for joining amanda as always a pleasure uh yes. we have chosen another in our collection now we, i think we can call it a collection right this is the third time we've done this yeah but what, do you think that seems fair we've got I a small collection great. yeah yeah, we've got a small collection stewing here, brewing. Uh, we have decided, and we decided this a few months ago, but we decided to dedicate uh, at least one book club episode a month to a black American author of some kind from any time period, any place. It's simply our way to contribute to ongoing conversations about race in America, about social issues, social justice issues around things like the Black Lives Matter movement, which I know I've stated my explicit support for before, and I believe Amanda has as well, but I, I won't speak for her on that issue. Yes. And so, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, that's fine. Uh, and so we are going to add another edition in today. We're doing, again, one a month. We try and release these book clubs early in the month. I'm going to be a little more aggressive promoting them going ahead, just getting people aware of what we're going to be covering. In case you want to read before the episode releases and then join us for the release, you can always come back to this, though. This episode will be here for forever, presumably. As long as the feed stays up, it will be there. So <laughs> we're going to post this one today and continue that series. Again, as I mentioned, this one is on Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, and it will be a spoiler-filled discussion. I want to make that very clear up front. Unlike our book review series, which is dedicated to not spoiling and recommending something and kind of rating it in a simpler, crude manner, we do our best there to get some nuance going, but those are really meant to recommend. This series is designed to 100% analyze, like I said, deep dive, spoil things. The entire text is fair game, and I would even extend that to criticism of the text outside of it is also fair game. At the end of every book club episode, we do like to end with a critical assistance segment where we pull some thoughts from other articles about the work. So just be aware, if you're listening to this and you don't care about that, then listen on and we're happy to have you. If you care about spoilers and having it ruined or having it you know, told to you, then go ahead and read it and come back and join us any other time. We'd be happy to have you. All of that set up. I think we're ready, Amanda. Let's dig into this one. This episode should be pretty fascinating. I did want to say one other thing, I guess, before we officially start. This book was an intriguing test of our commitment to this ongoing series relating to Black American experience and authors, mm -hmm. dedicating episodes to authors. And you and I talked about this. I wouldn't say that race issues or social justice issues per se are predominant in this story, but they do show up, especially yeah. in the second half of the novel. And just in case a listener is wondering, you know, you started with the coats and then you did one about a slave narrative. And th those are pretty explicit experiences that deal with it, racial injustices mm -hmm. and, and direct harms. This is a kind of a work of speculative fiction and it doesn't even, again, it delves into those things, but it's not really about them. Um, capital, you know, a about them. And I guess this is just to say, 
the novels we pick for this series don't have to be, or the works we pick, because Coates wasn't a novel. And I, I suppose I just wanted to say that up front, in case people were wondering or questioning, like, I thought you were going to pick things more focused or targeted. I don't think that's the case. I think we're looking to pick a pretty wide variety of works. Really, it's the authors we want to shift our attention to, and that, I think, right. is where our energies can be best focused and spent is just bringing awareness to a good variety of authors. The history of African-American literature and black American literature is incredibly rich and perhaps undertaught. And I would say most curricula. And so uh, the least again, we can do is kind of bring awareness, hopefully get some people book ideas and contribute to those conversations. But I just thought I'd say that because it, unlike the last episode with the whitehead where there were just so many race issues to discuss and interweaving conflicts and history and problems those conversations i just don't imagine will happen here so yeah yeah. but the i think that her focus was more about like even though she does mention some gender issues some um sexuality issues and some some race issues it's very fleeting uh compared to her i think actual focus in the work which is like just how the entire world is just kind of going to hell in a handbasket right now. <laughs> yeah. And as befits a, a work of essentially survivalist fiction, it, a lot of it just deals with basic survival and need and human right. d- not dying need, not, right. not complex social institutional systems overlapping. Those things are hinted at in the novel for sure. They're not absent, but mm-hmm. a lot of it does basically devolve. I think it would be the right word actually into just primal survival or at least for yeah. large chunks of it. And, you know, I don't want to undersell the subtlety. Again, all of these things crop up. It's just not dominant in the text. And so I just don't anticipate our conversations will go that way. But if they do, there's text that we can fall back on. So those mm-hmm. things are definitely here. At any rate, I think that's enough of a setup. Sorry for overloading the you listener at the beginning. I just thought I'd have a couple points to get off right away. Let's jump into our fill in the blank segment, though. I think Amanda deservedly needs to start this one off. I did make it, so I guess I'll set you up. Uh, we know that you're you're always the leadoff hitter. I don't know why I'm going <laughs> to yeah. use a baseball analogy metaphor there. I don't even like baseball, but oh well, you're the leadoff hitter. Uh, Amanda, let's set you up with a fill in the blank about this novel. Mm-hmm. In a survival group, and I think let's just say for simplicity's sake, in a survival group in this book's universe. So pretend that you're in a survival group like hers, wandering the Pacific highways or whatever. Mm-hmm. The, um, oh, sorry. I wrote that aside for myself. So in a, in a survival group like hers, your role would be blank. What do you got for us there? So I would not be a great doctor or somebody who would be great with uh, defense because the sight mm-hmm. of blood actually makes me nauseous and, and uh, woozy. And I can pass out pretty easily from that. Real uh, empath. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I'm like Lauren. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I would not be great with that, but uh, I would be really good with like kids and and cooking. And of course, I was a teacher at one point. So, and in this universe, not too many people are literate. So I would be the person I think who would be the kind of mother hen in the group, like right. your your typical mom. <laughs> which based on the exposure we get to the outside world in the second half of this novel don't undersell those skills because it seems like people the, the people with kids get preyed upon they're, they are uh-huh. considered the weaker because you know they have more to manage they're not as focused and is maybe rested or whatever and so almost i mean every predatory group they encounter is just young people mostly young yeah. men i would say from what i can recall anyway those yeah. are incredibly valuable skills i 
when I was trying to brainstorm for this one, I undersold the teaching ability, but you're a hundred percent right. Most of the characters are illiterate. And even mm-hmm. though in the front half, when she's in her community and her father's a professor of some kind, right? Yep. Doesn't he work at a co- yep, he works, he works at, at the university. Yeah. So it's clear that, and she's clearly illiterate because she teaches herself all kinds of things, but it seems like a lot of people in the community, the youngsters just don't have that as a priority. Most of them mm-hmm. don't have job prospects anyway. So they're just not emphasizing that kind of education rigor, but they go to school, I think, don't they, in their community? They do because um, her stepmom is in charge of like the high school level, and then she is in oh, charge yeah. of the yeah. little kids level. So she's yeah, also 100%. a teacher in the community. Yeah, I remember this now in the house. At any yeah. rate, so yeah, those skills are, I guess I shouldn't undersell myself there. I could teach literacy, that I still have that in my back pocket. My thought initially for this one, though, it's just, I could just be a manual labor. I have never been bothered by and actually kind of enjoy simple physical tasks, even when they're mm-hmm. repetitive. I like, here's a good example of one that I, I'm going to say a heinous thing here. And if, if this podcast gets canceled because of it, I, I don't mind. I really don't mind moving, for example, like a thing that everyone hates the most. I don't like packing. I don't like having to condense and do all that. But the actual like, I'm going to take this box and put it in a different place and like physically move it. That brings me some level of satisfaction, actually. Like I don't mm-hmm. I kind of enjoy that rote physical task, if that yeah. makes sense. It does so make I, sense. I, yeah, so I could be I could be a laborer type in this in this world. I would just be a you know, I could carry a pack happily and like set up camp. I can do those basic things. I'm not going to say I'm much of a survivalist though. I don't have a lot extended beyond that, but you know, where they end up on their little farm, you ut- potentially utopia little world at the end. Mm-hmm. I'd be well suited to just carrying logs and stuff like that, you know, within reason. I, I'm not looking to work 12 hours a day doing that. You know, and I'm looking to be in the shade, but uh, <laughs> within certain, I think, reasonable parameters, I, I could do that kind of work. So I think I'd be, I think I'd be decently set up for that kind of life. I would absolutely like. So with, I have such a, a weird relationship with um, labor in that I enjoy that kind of stuff where you can just kind of like shut your brain off and, and it's just muscle memory at that point. Right. And I, and I I enjoy seeing the product of my labor, but at the same time, I really don't like to sweat like at all. It is one of my, my things that I just absolutely hate. As soon as I notice that I'm sweating, I stop and I have to like go shower. Like I just really don't like it. um that's funny. I know I've said this in our like friend circles before, as you and I are, are friends in real life, uh, for new listeners who might not know that, but and I know I've said this before in other groups. I don't mind sweating at all, but I sweat very easily. What bothers me is that there's social stigma. So it's like, mm. if there were no stigma around sweating, I could live my life a bit more, a lot more comfortably because I sweat so easily. That's why I don't like the summer. But uh-huh. like when I work out and stuff, I don't hate being sweaty. I'm, it's just, I'm doing a physical thing. I get sweaty. I'm totally cool with it. It's that people give you the look and that you certainly can't be sweaty. And, you know, if you're in a, like a social relaxed scenario, people look at you odd and they're like, mm-hmm. are you okay? You know, like what you're sweating yeah. through your shirt. Like, are you, you know, it's, it's the social part of it that, uh, you know, we just associated with illness and being unwell and stuff like that. Right. And so that's it for like, if I were, you know, in this world for sure, sweat away i think and that way that's why it wouldn't bother me i think because there's really no hygiene (laughs) yeah that would also really bother me (laughs) 
<laughs> like okay. I just, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm very weird about this. And that's why I think I don't like sweat is just that I feel, I can feel it on me and that's what right. makes me stop the activity. Yeah. So if I can feel it, then I'm like grossed out. And our day, we live in a cleaned up time and a, and a nice smelling time period in just the history of the world. So I yeah. get that. I'm on board too. I'm the I'm the person that in this quarantine we are living through in 2020. I mean, I still put on my cologne every day. Like just, mm-hmm. I just lo- want to know that I smell okay in my home. Like I don't care if nobody else is around, you know, except for my roommate who probably doesn't even smell it or whatever. It's just, I, yeah. So I get that stuff too. I, I also like to feel clean. It's just to me, it's what is expected of me at the time. And yeah. in, in this world, it would be like, it's cool. You can be sweaty. You know, you got to do all this work, like whatever. So I think I'd be yeah. okay with it. In fact, in this world, the, um, you have to be dirty. Like if you show that you are clean at all, you become a target. Indeed. Yeah, that's fair. Let's use that as a segue because I do have a question I can start us off with. Yeah. A lot of the world building in this novel felt very effortless in a good way. Not mm-hmm. not lacking effort, but being very smooth and, you know, fluid. I still thought, though, that there were ideas that were underexplored, and that may have been the point. She did plan this as a, what is a five novel series, a tetralogy? I is that fine? so, Yeah. But that was her initial plan, and she only ended up finishing two before she passed. So at any rate, we got two books in the series. And so some of them, it felt like the world was hinted at frequently, but then there were ideas that were left on the table. The, the main two that came to mind for me that I was really dying for the book to dive into, and it never did, one was the corporate cities idea, that there were towns being constructed and protected by corporations because the government it exists and functions, but is a shell and so mm-hmm. it was just seeding land to companies. Only hinted at, never explored really. And then the other one was at the end of the book when she starts to realize there are other empaths like her around and that maybe it's tied to, well, we know it's tied to a drug, but that that is then tied to being in kind of sex work or forced labor and that that, that is like proliferating among those groups that it's like desirable to have empaths around because of their, you know, their... I don't know. Do you want to say handicap? I guess it's, is it a handicap? I, I think it's meant to be a handicap, right? That, and yeah, that also yeah. makes Lauren, I think more, uh, she's more, even more of a target because she's considered handicapped, right? She right, is right. a woman and she's black and she's not rich. So all the things mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> that you don't want to be in this world, she is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they bring up the there. There's a time when race is an explicit issue. They yeah. just don't think they'll have a good chance in the corporate city. There's a corporate right. city near them that's cropped up, uh, doing some kind of ocean water turning into energy or something like that. But it seems promising. Uh, but her family is convinced that they would not be they wouldn't be accepted in their application because they are black. And so that right. it is again explicitly in the text. It's just to me, wasn't a dominant theme. Anyway, long setup for a question, but do you feel like there was some idea in here that you wanted more time on the page? I frankly was hoping the second half of the book was just going to go, they were going to go to that city or something that, again, that's just me, you know, needlessly not predicting or it's like a needless desire. I don't fault the text for not doing it, but I Mm -hmm. couldn't help but think that I wanted that to happen. I knew that she wouldn't go there simply because um, Lauren, the main character, agreed with her father in that corporate cities is just another form of of slavery, right? Yeah. So, um, and that actually does come up uh, quite a bit is the concept of of this new world slavery, essentially. 
right, where fair. corporate corporations are the masters and the workers are, they start off as indentured servants and then they just become slaves essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I liked the, I, I would have liked to have seen more about uh, the corporate cities. I think that that tied in really well with um, Butler's main purpose in writing this. And I thought that the empath stuff was interesting and I'm pretty, I feel like she didn't really explore it that much just because it was there as a way to somehow handicap um, Lauren. Uh, so I, yeah. I think I yeah. get it that she didn't want to really explore it too much. Um, but I think that of the two that you mentioned, uh, the corporate cities would have fit in better um, if she had explored that a little bit more, explained um, yeah. her concept of that a little bit more. But I feel like I did get a pretty good idea of what she was afraid of as far as those corporate cities and, and oh, corporate yeah. corporations Absolutely. taking over land. Mm-hmm. And by the time she strikes off on her own or with her small group, it it fits her character perfectly just because she had planned for this for so long. And at yeah. that point, her, her literal like seed of an idea, you know, her religion, earth seed was she wants to develop that. She doesn't want to go to a place that's going to squelch that or whatever. Right. So it makes perfect sense. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. Well, do you mind if I take one of your questions then? I was just looking them over. Yeah, sure. Do, is there a particular one you want to go to or? I was looking at the first one because it does seem to be, I know in the New Yorker piece we'll reference later, it does seem to be why this book is getting, I don't know, a resurgence of sorts in attention. Yeah. So it is kind of a near future story. Do you want to pitch the question though? Sure. And I stole two of my three questions actually from the reading guide in the back. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Is this so one of them? Yeah, this is. Oh, well, okay, cool. I, and I ellipsed obviously um, quite a few of the because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a longer question. But um, so yeah, the, for sure. <laughs> the near future of Parable of the Sower reflects an America steeped in chaos with relentless poverty and lawlessness. The author has said that she came to this vision of the future by imagining our current woes progressing unchecked for, to their logical ends. Do you agree or disagree that this is a possible future for America? And do you think things will be better or worse than they are now? I will say I'm going to, I don't like the two questions, but I know why you chose them. So I'm going to answer them in a snotty asshole way. And then I'll get into a longer answer. So the (laughs) answer to the first one is of course you have to agree. Anything is possible. I mean, if, Mm -hmm. if this year has made nothing clear, it should be that. I mean, any history is not a line. You can backslide at any time. There's no, there's no guarantees in, in the history, like, you know, the historical development of the world. So yeah, of course, something like this possible. Do I think we'll be better or worse? I, that's absurd to ask it. Like I have no clue, but I have thoughts about the book. There are a lot of things the book does really well in terms of revealing societal trends or sort of interweaving, I don't know, societal complications. Mm-hmm. One thing I thought the book did extremely well was set up that first half and the backslide happens really slowly for her own community. It's basically just a symbol of the country or, you know, it's a microcosm or what's the English term, like a synecdoche or something, you know, it's one of Mm -hmm. those, it's, it's a small thing that represents the whole thing, right? It's like her community is falling apart, but it takes a long time takes And there's jumps ahead in like years, I think, or Mm -hmm. half a year, you know, there's significant time jumps just because, yeah, you, of course, your community gets attacked, but then there's six months of calm, enough time for people to placate themselves and to become complacent. And then they, and then, of course, there's another issue and another, and things compound. And then before you know it, it's over. And so right. I think 
the way that felt in the narrative, the pace of it, I thought that all worked really well. And it continues when they're outside of it, the way that they can still get through communities that are protecting themselves, the like really commonplace use of guns. I mean, this is a country that has a lot of guns out in public. So it does mm-hmm. seem reasonable to think that if I don't if the police force wasn't operating under anyone's control anymore, that would become a very valuable thing, right? Having or not having a gun. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think it all it, it all clicked. Like the society she imagined felt very cohesive. The element to me that felt the most, I don't know, like real or lived in was just the pace of everything. That it felt like nothing dramatic had happened, but then dramatic things do happen. And that's how it would probably feel in real life. It would feel like th- no, there was no levy that broke. And then all of a sudden you're drowning and you're like, well, what the fuck? Like I, you know, but we yeah. survived those other small things. How did, you know, what was the thing that led to this one thing? Everyone you know, in history, often people want to look for a, a one cause and the true answer is like, there's a hundred little ones and you just didn't put them together. And so I thought that the, the pace of that, the structure, all that stuff to me felt like, yes, this is how this could occur. So yeah. yeah anyway, I there's agree. the flip answers to your questions and then a real answer, hopefully. That's great. <laughs> uh, yeah. I also, um, uh, when I was reading this, the reason I chose this book was because like the reviews were like, oh my gosh, it's like she predicted the future. She wrote this in, or this was published in 93, right? Yeah, and it's, right. it's set in the time of the, the beginning is 2024. So mm-hmm. you know, four years from now. Um, it's coming. It's we'll be coming. indoors still. <laughs> the, Coronavirus the too, et cetera. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but the things that uh, what what I found gripping uh, too while I was reading this, I thought that you know I I actually just really enjoyed this read. But what I found most gripping was um, the the similarities, the things that Octavia Butler had predicted that are kind of coming true right now. <laughs> like right, mm-hmm. she yeah, she yeah. mentioned um, like the specifically the police and how the police are um, authority figures who are actually taking advantage of people. They don't show up to the crimes in time to actually be productive. And then they demand a fee. It's a mafia scheme. Right. Exactly. And so it's, that was, I thought pretty interesting. Um, And uh, the, the limited power of the government. Um, She said in there that the government was there just to essentially send in the military whenever they felt like, which, you know, if we look Mm -hmm. at uh, Portland, right. (laughs) What's going on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very recent current event, depending on when listeners hear this, but I think they just removed federal troops. I I know that only because the Twitter footage of things I followed has really died. So Mm -hmm. I just assume that they've de-escalated a little. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then, yeah, so. and then uh, global warming, inflation of prices, um, mm-hmm. big corporations uh, kind of taking over most aspects of our lives um, because we're so dependent on it. And also the government is becoming dependent on big um, corporations. And, right, right. And then um, the diseases, which I found was really, and, and also drug abuse. But Yeah, the disease- drug abuse the pyros but the diseases that that was interesting it's um it's almost like she kind of like predicted that there would be like anti-vaxxers or something because these old school diseases that we have vaccinations for are cropping up right in the book partly because kids they can't afford to vaccinate kids anymore so that those diseases are coming back in full and just like eradicating 
large communities and stuff. And, yeah. and I just, that was also. Yeah. Really and there's no, it doesn't seem like there's a coherent enough government apparatus to deliver that kind of thing anymore. There's no exactly. signs of clear governance. That was a bit of a disconnect. I mean, granted, of course, the a federal type of government could ser- outlast certain, I don't know, s- pandemic-like swings or, or sort of catastrophic swings in how the country's going. But it was mm-hmm. weird to hear them talk a lot about the president and then also know that they can't call their police force. And they like, those things are just, there's, I guess it is its own commentary, right? On bureaucracy and how institutions very large, like a huge, you know, multi-state nation like the U.S., how those things, there's so many levels removed from each other that yeah. it is kind of mind blowing that we ever got it to click into place at all. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. when you look at it that way and you see all the gears clicking together, you wonder how it, any of it ever coheres when mm-hmm. you're just like, the president could still be giving an address when there's no government operating in your town, basically, and there's no one to call, but there's still a person like it. The disconnect there could happen. Um, I don't think they explored that, the kind of local politics stuff, maybe as much as I, again, would have hoped. But I still think the point it makes and the the disconnect it shows between what the characters expect and the reality and everything was, was pretty potent. Um, so I, I thought that was pretty good. And I thought it was a reflection too of that one thing that she keeps pointing out in the novel is that the, the older people keep saying, Oh, it's going to get better. It'll be like the old days. Right. So we just have to vote yeah, Do- yeah. president Donner in cause he's promising that he's going to make America great again and, and things will return mm-hmm. to the good old days. So it's that, that uh, holding on to something that is long past that I think we also kind of, see today actually in a lot of ways where people are just like hanging on you know the people who are like i'm not going to change this the name of this uh school even though it was after a a confederate general and da 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 right stuff like that where you see people just hanging on to something that you're like man it's past man (laughs) get with the times (laughs) i was thinking the more horrific comparison there though it would be a you'd have to connect some dots in between but it's the same people who are currently like this coronavirus will go away. Right. I mean, those words have come out of our our fearless president's mouth. Um, We'll, we'll, (laughs) we'll, we will avoid specific political positions on this podcast, at least this episode, but uh, the, the mismanagement has been a blunder for, for history to remember. That is certain. That is extremely clear at this point. We're recording this. What is this? August 6th, 2020. Historians, if you hear this, go ahead and just compare the timelines or whatever. You'll see. Just Google stuff. You'll know. (laughs) (laughs) Look up things that were said and when they were said and then things that weren't done and when they weren't done and it'll make sense. At any rate, the whole point of that aside being that the people are already using that rhetoric now and it's just mind boggling to think that you you believe a switch will get flipped. Like what about history or disease has ever led us to believe that? I don't know. That's not how a disease works. That's not a thing you can expect or believe. We've lived comfortably that way because of vaccines, but at any rate, so no, that the rhetoric wasn't about pandemic stuff in the book, but seeing it was, yeah, it's disconcerting. Obviously people, I, you know, humans are short-term thinking comfort creatures to a degree. Um, we'll mm-hmm. get to a quote from one of the articles I pulled kind of about that. But at, that comes through, again, pretty clear in the book. I think she's a smart observer of human behavior. So I think For that sure. 
yeah, those those conversations when they're had are depressing, but they're also quite real. Let me throw. I've I've got a segue that has incredibly uh, a rough segue, no smoothness here. But I do want to get into. We've I feel like we've talked around the novel very broadly, really well. And I do have one question that's more targeted to the I don't know characters and structure, and mm-hmm. it's about the. It, how did you pronounce his name? Bankle. I did. Okay, but Bankle. Since it's uh, Yorubian, right? Yoruba. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I'd forgot that. Yeah, um, because it's also Lauren's last name. Her last name was Olamina, and they bonded over the mm-hmm. fact that their ancestors had chosen um, it, most. They were saying that most um, Black Americans chose Swahili names. I um, do remember that. Yes, but yeah, I do their, their two families chose uh, names from Yoruba, I believe. Oh, okay. Did you look up the pronunciation? No, but I oh, okay. I just that... know that it's probably not Bankle, but maybe it's like Bankole or oh, Bankole like, oh, yeah. or something, I could see right? That. I was just expecting an <laughs> accent, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bankole would make a lot of sense, actually. And mm-hmm. that's, yeah, okay. Uh, that's fine with me. We pronounce it that way. As we've stated in other pods, if you're a new listener, I names to me in books mean almost nothing. I It's like I reduce character names to letters and I just keep reading fast. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> embarrassing how I don't remember character names at the end, but I remember like dialogue they said or a moment that happened with them, but I, their name is just like whatever. It's just a mark on a page. Uh, not a good reading habit, but anyway. Um, yeah, let's go with Bankole. That's fine. How did you interpret him? I mean, it's a broad question, but I think he just wears a lot of hats in the story and his injection. He's clearly extremely significant, but doesn't get a ton of page time. I mean, he gets a good amount, right? He's in there quite a lot. But how did you react to his character? How do you find him in terms of his significance in the story? Uh, I I just kind of with this particular character, I wasn't really that impressed with him. I know that he was like a necessary character for Lauren's personal growth and her um her need for um verification of the the validity of her religion and the validity of her choices because it's actually more of like her father figure she keeps comparing him to her father in fact and he's much older they make a great point of uh, his he like recoils after that they have sex and then he she he asks her age after and he yeah. like recoils at it because I think at that point she's 18 or 17, right? Yeah. At, by the end she's 18. Yeah. And he's like, what, yeah. 53 or something yeah, like that? Yeah. 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 Well, much old. Yeah. This is, <laughs> this is Hollywood elite level romantic age gap kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Huge age gap. Um, and, and he's also, so, and he's older. He's um, somebody that she looks up to because she sees strength in him. And she talks about like how, mm um her father she compares him to um her father's strength and stuff like that so i th- i think that he was and he also provides her what she needs like emotionally but as well as um in the end what she needs for earth seed right and the, right, for her community yeah. so she is he is rather he's kind of like the um the missing piece to her so that she can feel um ready to start earth seed and that she's she's um valid in attempting to try her own community so i looked at him not so much as like a character but just like a means to an end for her yeah he 
I don't know if any of the characters in the back half felt fleshed out, except for the two that come from the community with her. Mm-hmm. And again, names will, I think for the next one, I need to rectify this and like actually write a list down because I'm not, I don't remember any of their names. I know there's a man and a woman who kind of fall in with each other. And she was a former, she was like a survivor type and was picked up off the street and was actually bought as a child. Like, I remember everything about them. I, yeah, Zara <laughs> and the other guy's was. A, he's a, yeah, yeah. And the other guy's a white man and he's a little more privileged. He's, he also seems more strictly moral and religious at first. There's that conflict. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm just spouting now to like not sound like an asshole, but I, I just don't remember any names. <laughs> um, yeah. At any rate, yeah, I, other than those two, all of the character work in the back half is pretty quick hitting. And there's the character death with the sister that I think is supposed to be pretty resonant. You know, it's kind of like considered as a serious loss, but it does feel pretty quick moving. And I don't know if it gives the characters time to breathe. I I enjoyed his maturity, I suppose, as a contrast. And I Mm -hmm. thought their relationship was because the story is told from her perspective, I think it kind of works okay just because you see her comfortability with it and kind of her desire. It still made me uncomfortable. Maybe that's kind of the point. I it more than anything, and I you and I talked about this pre-recording, but it was another element of the text, and there were a lot of them where I thought the sequel to this will be intriguing to me. Like it's it just got something started, and I would love to see where it goes. I don't know if this book made me feel a hundred percent satisfied with the way it, it dealt with those characters or relationships or whatever. It was effective though. And it got me into it enough to think, yeah, I'd read like if, if there's a 10 year time skip and they have a kid or whatever, like yeah. I would love to see how that develops. And I guess that's a success enough, but yeah, that's kind of how I felt about him. And yeah, maybe in the second book, but uh, yeah, with it, to your point about the, the other characters as well, I felt mm-hmm. that, yeah, they were, the the main focus of the novel is Lauren and it is about her journey uh, in, in mapping out this new world and in trying to create a, a safe haven for herself and for other people through her belief system. And um, I think that the characters were just supposed to really kind of test her as far as like her ability to actually get people to understand the religion and to do that stuff. And I think actually, wasn't there a total of 13 people that she picked up and then one of them died. So it was then 12. So isn't that like similar to the disciples in the Bible? That, that number sounds right ish though. I couldn't tell you for sure if it is a hundred percent, right? That sounds about, yeah, like 12 disciples. I'm pretty sure is the number. Yeah. And, I, and actually, I don't know. Does that include the, the babies or the children? The super that does young? include the children. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so see, it's a because, total of, of 13 and then down to 12 after yeah. Jill right. is killed. Oh, excellent. I, w- I wonder, did, I wonder if they said that number, I should have picked up on the symbolism of that then. I, that, I think that went over my head because I, you know, as I'm no, reading No, they never too, said it. I was counting oh, it. Oh, okay. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say if they, if they mentioned that as a number, I, I would have hoped to have jumped on that. But anyway, no, I, it's probably because to me again, given their role in the story, I wasn't even really counting the bait. Like they just kind of, and that's the thing, the babies don't draw, bring a lot of conflict. I think they draw attention to them once and there's that fight, but Otherwise, it's kind of just like, yeah, they entertain the babies and you know the, the woman that they meet who has like the actual baby, they kind of just mm-hmm. take care of it. I, it's not really a significant, it kind of fades away, you know, I, I suppose yeah. I wasn't thinking about it. That's a great point, though. And that is extremely fitting given the mission, her mission. Yeah, yeah. And I was um, very quickly looking up the meaning of 
Dankole. Um, oh, cool. And yeah. it means uh, build my house for me, which I think is pretty fitting. Perfect. I mean, at the end, <laughs> he is the plot mechanic that gets them to a potential paradise. It turns out to be a bit of a false one, perhaps, but he is the, yeah, he is that out in the plot as well. That was the other thing maybe about his character as to why I wrote that. Stacking the plot thing onto him with that felt like a bit much, I guess. I thought he was intriguing enough being a mentor, a romantic partner that could be wildly inappropriate and like that. I thought that entanglement was enough. Then to tack it on to be, have him be, I have land and we can get out of here kind of. I don't know. It just felt like one extra thing. I, I'm not sure if it was too much or didn't give other characters some intrigue or interest or building space. I'm not sure. He didn't sit right with me a hundred percent, but at least with their relationship, because it was her point of view, I kind of slid into it a bit more comfortably, I guess. Yeah. Do you have any more questions? I'm going to toss my third one just because I want to get to the quotes and my, we'll get, I'm sure we'll address things in my third one. Anyway, do you have any other questions you want to get out before we jump to the syntax? Uh, yeah. So I mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. We were just talking a little bit about like the the symbolism of uh, the disciples and the apostles and 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 like even the title is parable of the sower right um, yeah so yeah. throughout the novel there are pieces of poetry and um, which are her lessons from Earthseed in fact each chapter begins with a piece of poetry that teaches us about what Earthseed is about but the very last piece in the story, like it's the last thing that you read in the story is actually a passage from the Bible, from the Christian Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, yeah. um, it, which I, and nowhere else does she really ever, uh, put in anything about it's, it's from, uh, Luke eight verses five through eight. Um, so when I came to that, I was kind of like surprised, right? I, I thought that she would, because she begins, the very first thing that you read in the book is actually a piece from Earthseed. But then she ends yeah. with a passage from did, the Christian Bible. Did, did it surprise you that it's the passage about the, it's the parable of the sower? <laughs> that part is it really so surprise. surprising? It's not that, surprising. <laughs> that part didn't surprise me. It's, it's, like but... the, it's like the author at the end explains the title to you in case you didn't yeah. notice. Like, I don't, that's my answer. Again, I don't want to be flip okay. or anything, but it's like, if you want me to do an analysis of this, it would be, here's how it relates to the plot of the story. <laughs> like so, it's okay. what happened. Yeah. So do you think that that added to anything? Do you think, did that help you with understanding? For did my she reading, do- no, no, I don't, for my reading, no. Cause it was so clear by the end. And I don't, it, it wasn't an especially, we're not, this isn't James Joyce or something. It wasn't an especially insanely intricate and layered novel or something. So no, it didn't right. harm anything. I, I, I'm pretty sure I probably did a quick read of it and, and nodded my head and was like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. She's, she's spreading her own religion. She's has her, she's spreading the seeds. She's got her family around her. Now they have their little, you know, semi utopia they're trying to start. And so, no, I think, I think it clicks into place fine. It just, yeah. Did it amplify anything for me? Like not that I remember and I'm looking at it now. Not really. I, it's a nice callback to her father, which I think is a nice kind of touch. Just it, mm. you can't, I don't think you can rip her religious kind of proclivities or preferences away from the fact that she's a preacher's daughter. That seems yeah. pretty psychologically crucial to her. Was there a quote in it that, that I don't know, because it also mentions like I'm looking at the quotes, right? Some fell among the thorns and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it and others fell on the good ground. Like it's all these failures. You know, this is a, it's a catastrophic world, right? Not everyone's right. going to survive. No one's surviving. 
and and her whole motto is change or die. You know, right. embrace the god of change or change itself as a god. Embrace that and bow to it and you know worship it or you'll be dead. And so yeah, no, I think thematically it was a perfect fit. But yeah, I don't. It didn't strike me in that same way. I think I probably just nodded as it, it again the clear message in the parable, and then also. Like I think it's a callback to her father too, which is nice. Okay. Was there a quote in it that struck you? No, not necessarily. It just struck me that she ended mm-hmm. with instead of her own writing and her own religion, she's well, calling back and, to the Christian religion. And correct me if I'm wrong too. That that has nothing to do. The narrator is not saying that. That is the author that has put that in, right? Like it, it doesn't say that Lauren says that or that Lauren writes it or that Lauren recites it, right? That's just like there. Or no? Am I misreading? No. Well, the entire thing is written as a diary. So this would have been Lauren putting it in. Yeah, I, yeah that is pre- yeah, presumably true, I suppose. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess it's they did their acorns, right? So I, it's a, mm-hmm. I, would, I would peg it as a remembrance moment then. Yeah, for her father especially. That's, oh, yeah, that's a good that point. That could have been, and as, as in terms of a twist or a little bit of a reveal, it could be that that's what motivated her to start Earthseed was like she heard that from her father once and was like, wait, there's something in that. And then, you know, so it could be a, that kind of yeah. a turn or reveal, which I, you know, I look at that. Does it change my interpretation? No, it just feels coherent, like in a good way. Yeah. And I wouldn't say in an especially insightful way, but it's, you know, it's nice. It's like, OK, yeah, that makes sense. If she would have had like a flashback there about the time her father delivered, I feel like it could have had a little more, I don't know, emotional punch up or something, but mm-hmm. I don't think it needs it. It, it was nice. I, it would be my initial reaction. Yeah, I had for- yeah. forgotten that it was also like right after the, the acorn scene. So that makes sense mm-hmm. to do it that way. Yeah, they're kind of buried the past moment. Yeah. Let's move into the syntax celebration. This is the deep dive part when we dig into some quotes that we liked or disliked or just had thoughts about from the text. Do you want me to start off today? I feel like I just threw something to you. I'll I'll happily toss one in. I didn't pull, I noticed you pulled some quotes from the Earthseed poetry and I didn't pull any. So we we split in a very natural way then. I'll pull some other stuff. Uh, I pulled a quote from page 50 and it's early-ish in the novel. I think this is indicative of her, of her style. I tried to pull a couple of sentences that I think gave the best sense of what it feels like to read this. And this is maybe the book reviewer in me coming out, but this is the quote I pulled. She, Lauren says, God, I hate this place. I mean, I love it. It's home. These are my people, but I hate it. It's like an island surrounded by sharks. It's a, except that sharks don't bother you unless you go in the water. But our land sharks are on their way in. It's just a matter of how long it takes for them to get hungry enough. And I think... That short clip encapsulates all of her writing style, except for not having rhetorical questions, which she absolutely loads up on in <laughs> yeah. the story. And I know that because it's a it's a rhetorical device I do not like. So I noticed it because they are everywhere and there's tons of them. It's got a strong narrative voice. It's quick. The sentences often just are snappy. They they move next to each other. They often contradict because it feels very much like a diary, like someone really trying to hash out their thoughts when they don't have clear ones yet to hash out. Mm-hmm. And so it has that kind of contradictory nature. It's very, I wouldn't call it full. Why did I just forget that word? You know, when you're just dictating your subconscious, what's the word for that? Stream of consciousness. There you go. Stream of con. That's the word. It's not full on that because it's so readable and it's so simple, but I think that's the point. I think it, it made it very easy to read. I don't know if it made it fully enjoyable at times, especially when the violence is introduced. 
I'm just a snobbish asshole reader who now expects every violent thing to be written like Cormac McCarthy because I really like Cormac McCarthy and the way he depicts violence. So now when I read authors who treat violence in quick sentences and they often say things like, I, I don't even know what to say. I think at some points in the story, she says that she'll write that in. It does feel very diary-like uh, and I thought it was effective and felt accurate. I don't know if I always loved that though, because I think mm-hmm. it does feel over simple at times. But then again, you know, there's complexity in other ways in the work. I don't know how you felt about the stylistic trappings. Well, so I also pulled a quote um, that I thought encapsulated the fact that she, that I, I said that her writing was very staccato, as in like it's short sentences, yeah. very simple sentences, and it's like a rapid fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for um, sure. And, and I think that the reason for that is, yes, it's written as a diary. Like it, she's got diary entries and she states specifically that she's um, kind of writing this diary in order to kind of um, explain the beginnings of earth seed and how they came to right, be. Right. Right. So it's more of like uh, philosophical jottings down and, and as well as an explanation of, what her life was like that so that it came up um, like things. And, and actually Bancole like brings it up later. It's like, it's too logical. Her, her ideas are too logical and there's no mysticism in it. And she says, I don't want there to be mysticism. I want it to be logical. And I want my descendants to understand like the reasoning behind it too, which I think is another reason yeah. why she writes yeah. this. So I think that's the style that Octav- Octavia Butler chose was, short to the point and very simple in order to highlight that the purpose of this art, this uh, diary is so that people would have an easy time to understand, especially considering the role that education has been playing uh, in the country, in that country at that time, which is like non-existent for most people. So you want to keep ideas simple and to the point. This Um, is when, this is when I buck up against something that's happened to me in other works too. Mm-hmm. Where because you you need to give an in-universe justification for your thing to exist, it then dictates how your thing was written. And I think here it works again perfectly well. Yeah, everything yeah. you said was well observed. But I just look at it as a reader. I'm like, I, give me something more intense. I don't know. Like there were just moments that felt too bland to me. But again, that's my own, you know, readerly expectation or something like that. I think it worked really well. And it, you know, was quite clear had a great you know flow. I think the staccato, like you pointed out, makes for, for easy but pretty intense reading at times. It's just, I don't know. I feel like I was projecting expectations onto it that it, it it's very staid. It's just a very reserved feeling thing in the way it was written, which um, I think, as you explained well, yeah, it's like, it has a great in-world justification for why that would be. Yeah, and, and when you pointed out like you weren't really a fan of the way that she wrote the violent scenes, uh, part of that also is like as an empath, any violence she's like downed. Right. So we don't get to, because she is our main source of information. Once she passes out or if she feels that extreme pain and stuff like that, she's of course not going to focus on it, which yeah. means that we don't get the, the full picture. But, and, and the yeah, but there's a, literally a sentence in there that says the pain when I was stabbed was like nothing I can describe. And it's like, that's You're true, using yeah. a character to cop out of an interesting moment to describe something unique. Like that's I, yeah. again, it's just like that, that is literally a sentence in here, which feels like 
it to me again it feels very teenage like it i i didn't take issue with it when i read it but that doesn't mean it has to provoke me either or make it it didn't feel particularly interesting to read it was just like oh okay like we're just gonna skip this then and keep it moving and yeah and so anyway but no I, i i agree i think the narrative voice is strong and i think in the quote i even pulled i that i think is indicative of the kind of you know, that, that shark metaphor there, it, mm-hmm. I read that and I think literally, I think I've had students writing similar to that where you're like, you should probably stop explaining this metaphor now. And then they just keep explaining it. And you're like, okay, it, it's, yeah, I got it. And so anyway, it just, there were moments like that where I think none of it was, was poorly done. And she captured the voice of this, you know, o- overly intelligent, like precocious young person, but still a young person. I think it straddled mm-hmm. that really well. I think, yes, it achieved that for sure. In a good way. Yeah, I um, I pulled another quote that kind of like highlights the simplicity mm-hmm. of um, her writing. Um, and the quote is mm-hmm. from page four. It says, I'm learning to fly to levitate myself. No one is teaching me. I'm just learning on my own little by little dream lesson by dream lesson. Not a very subtle image, but a persistent one. And then, in fact, the image of flight of birds, that kind of stuff is scattered throughout the entire novel. And that is not, it's not like she does anything, you know, really unique with that image. Everybody knows this image. Everybody understands, right? It's an archetype. Right, it's yeah. something that everybody can completely understand. You know what they're trying to show. You know the symbolism behind it, all that stuff. And I think that that's another indication of, as you said, like how a teenager would sometimes write. Like teenagers are, yeah, they use so. a lot of the, the same motifs that they've read. Right. They're not necessarily sure. going to come up with brand new ideas. So I think yeah. there's that aspect. And also, I think it goes to the point of um, trying to keep things simple. You're not trying to throw new um, ideas and new metaphors and <laughs> new symbols at people who have right. who don't have the ability to to read and stuff like that. So I. I I, as somebody who likes to analyze like word choice and, and metaphor and stuff like that, I found myself not doing that as much as I was reading this. Um, yeah. Right. Simply because like the writing style was meant to be simplified in that way. But I did find mm-hmm. myself kind of like hungering a little bit more for that. But I, I still really enjoyed the book, not to downplay the book. And I think that the book did a lot of really great things and it was, maybe not in, in the same vein as like what we read with Whitehead and um, Coates, but I think that it was still just as powerful in, in discussing, I think some, some things that are going on right now in our society. Yeah. It's almost that weird. It's almost like it straddles that young adult, adult, whatever that divide is, which even at times I think is sort of an imaginary divide at any rate. Like Mm -hmm. I don't, I dropped those lines a little bit in my head because I had to recommend literature to young people or like teens and try and, you know, steer them in a right place or whatever. Yeah. So I don't think that's a false divide, but it can, there are blurrier things than you think. Here's a quick example that again, hopefully doesn't cancel me. I think this person is still really respected. Like on a pound for pound level, like John Green's writing is one that always stands out as like, man, that guy can, he can string them together. I mean that, you know, if you don't like romantic stories about twee, interesting 14 and 15 year olds, like fine that you don't have to read his books, but I just look at it syntactically and I'm like, he can really, he knows how to engage and flow and there, and he's using all the tools. And I just think his writing is really elevated. And, you Mm -hmm. know, again, 
I don't want to project onto any work and say it should have been X. That's like the war again, the worst analysis, but there were enough moments in here where the intensity of the content did not rise to the intensity of the journalistic stylings. But I think again, there's a divide there. There's a break that is I think intentional too. It's a voice very well realized. I never Mm -hmm. felt, I felt like I was with a person the entire time and they had a clear, uh, just a clear narrative tone about them and everything. So in that way, I, th- I think it was really successful. Yeah, whether I loved it or not, like I don't think I ended up loving it, but I think I enjoyed it though. And like you said, it only made better that it was pretty readable. You know, if this would have yeah. been that same issue, but really dense, then I, I don't know what I would have felt. Um, how about quotes for you? Any quotes you want to celebrate? So another one that... I chose actually was the one that I said was like staccato. So it says numbers mattered. Friendship mattered. One real male presence mattered. Those are three separate sentences on page 183. Mm -hmm. So it's that staccato style of writing. But the, the real focus for me was the last sentence, which is one real male presence mattered. We talked a little bit earlier about how this story doesn't really talk about, um, uh, it mentions marginalization, but it doesn't really delve into it that much. Um, so yeah, yeah. So you kind of like, because I was looking for that specifically because I was like, oh man, okay. So I wanted to, after reading um, Coates' stuff, what I, what I was really hungering for after our discussion was to read more about the, the black female experience um, because there's a yeah, lot of right. discussion about like what it's like to be um, male and black, but, and there's people will say, Oh, you you know, it doesn't compare to what it's like for a black woman, but then there's no actual like explanation for that. So I was looking for that here and I didn't really get it. So every time that I saw any mention of marginalization, I just like kind of like clung onto it. (laughs) Like, yeah, it really stood up enough. It's, it's just so much, it is really survivalist the way they talk about it. Think of when they start out on the highway they, they do discuss the makeup of their group, but only because the race combinations will seem odd to be that it's it makes them vulnerable. Or, right. or was it I honestly don't remember was the point that it will make them vulnerable or will make them seem I think their point was that it would make them seem odd. Isn't that why she pretends to be a man as well? Yeah. So she right. pretends to be a man because Zara is black and she's black. So they would look yeah. like a couple and they didn't want to become they said targets because there were people mm-hmm. who did not like interracial couples right yeah yeah so it's but it's all presented in that very pragmatic survivalist quick fashion there's there's definitely no you know notes there's definitely no long notes or digressions about like the history of what happened to racial marriage equality and there's that's not here it's just we need to survive this right so, yeah, no, I completely agree. Any other quote? I do have a quote. I, let me tack this on, too, because I just realized I was looking back and I realized I did pull the quote about the that I had remembered incorrectly about not feeling the pain or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I do want to pull the end of that just to show the rhetorical questions in action. Yeah, there, she just had stabbed someone and had passed out from the empathy pain. Then she says, um, not until then could I begin to be aware of something other than the pain. The first thing I heard was Dominic crying. I understood then that I had also heard shots fired, several shots. Where was everyone? Were they wounded, dead, being held prisoner? And that's the last question. It, that's another stylistic flourish that she relies on a ton. Um, and I think it works for the most part because, I, you know, 
action scenes are confusing. It's something that movies do really well as they film them with such clarity now that we think, yeah, being in a fight, like I know what's going on. I can track the action, but the reality is that's completely false. If you were in, you know, a melee style brawl, often you don't understand anything that's right. going on and you're just trying to survive and swinging randomly, firing randomly and, you know, they're fighting in the dark. So I think the briskness of it worked. I, to me, the failing there is again, and you and I talked about this, maybe we can hash this out now. I, the empathy stuff never fully came to the front of the text to me. It just never, right. like it literally affects the plot. You and I have obviously talked about it. The quote there proves it, right? But it, I don't know if I felt by the end of this, why it had to exist, I suppose, is my very simple point, which is a broad and maybe too generalized take. But I just think if this would have been a novel about the state of things, the survival aspects, the the um, disintegration of society, all those things, like, do you feel like the empathy stuff wove into this well? I guess it could help in her religion and founding it, but I, that, that those things don't combine in a way that grabbed me in this book. Yeah, I... I felt it was very, uh, I understood why she did it, but I didn't think that it really added anything to the story except to like make the other sharers as they're called, um, like her more and trust her more. Uh, that's it. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Man. And that was yeah, right at the end. That was another, that's why I was like, man, I wish you explore that more. Like it, right. it's another thing where I look at the sequel and I'm like, well, D- does she end up trying to recruit that way where it's like, I am an empathetic empath or I'm a, that was a weird phrase that I said, it, but because she's an empath, <laughs> I can take care of you or I can understand your, your plight and, you know, come right. to me. It just felt like another one of those things where I thought, ah, the sequel, huh? You know, like what's, what's going to happen with this in the sequel? And so yeah. I, again, I wasn't sure what your reaction was to all of that in the plot. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And so that, that was the back half of that same quote. Uh, what other quotes do you have? Anything else you want to read and Talk about? Sure, I've just got uh, one more thing, which is it deals more with like the the way that the novel is set up in the format. Um, so she writes uh, each chapter begins with um, a poem, which is about Earthseed, uh, the religion. So mm-hmm. I chose the the first one from the first chapter, and it says, "All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change." So this is. Uh, almost the very first thing that you read in this novel, the um, the thing, the only thing that's comes before it is actually another passage from Earthseed, but in mm-hmm. prose form rather than poetry form. And um, I just thought that these little bits of poetry were really interesting because it shows the the log- logical progression of her thoughts on this religion that she's uh, what she says discovering instead of creating right so she's discovering this this religion and i thought that it was interesting to see the thought process that goes into creating a religion and it's uh it's i tried to figure out like how those particular whether those um particular bits were meant to be a reflection of that particular chapter Right. Because, I mean, there's a reason that there are chapters. Right. So <clears throat> I just thought that um, perhaps that and on a second reading, perhaps I could find even more meaning in those particular choices. But what I also found interesting yeah. was that the the way that she wrote the poetry is kind of <laughs> similar to the way that she writes the diary in that it's really short. It's to the point and very simplistic. Right. It, there's no real rhyme scheme or anything like that. She's not trying yeah, to style right. it up much. 
and, but it's still poetry, but it's like poetry in the most like matter of fact way possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the, the only other quote I had too. I'm just going to tack on and we can discuss them how they interplay, but it's her explanation of when she really starts to solidify the religion on 123. She says, I, I don't care. I'm trying to speak or write the truth. I'm trying to be clear. I'm not interested in being fancy or even original. Clarity and truth will be plenty if only I can achieve them. If it happens that there are other people outside somewhere preaching my truth, I will join them. Otherwise, I'll adapt where I must, take what opportunities I can find or make, hang on, gather students, and teach. And, it, I, you know, in terms of character work, it's, it's well-realized and she articulates it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still there's a hole at the heart of it that I never felt like my brain filled in, or maybe again it could just be me projecting wants onto the text or something. But where did it come from? Still, like, I, is it just her lived experience? And I think it, that's a natural enough answer and probably a fine one. It's just that this world made her this way, and that's you know she's in a deteriorating world of change, and so only natural that this would come up. I think it, it part of it felt like there was stuff between her and her father, the preacher influence that again, maybe I just didn't get the connection. Maybe there were some, a couple moments that I underestimated or just under read or something, but it never, the, the depth of her passion about it. I don't know if it ever fully convinced me of it. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure if I'm articulating that well enough, but I I'm, wonder how you felt. I think, cause I look at an explanation like that and I think, fair enough, you know, you live in a changing world. And she mentions like the Egyptian book of the dead there. And there's some like illusions you could maybe unpack, but she also says she never read them. So at any rate, who knows what that means? But I guess the point being, if I had to explain to someone the why of it for her, I, I'm not sure if I could, I don't know if the story explains it in a, in an explicit way, or maybe it just implies it things. I'm not sure if you felt like you had a why answer to that question. I think um, in the beginning of the novel, she did mention that she was raised obviously Christian, but that she didn't understand the Christian God. Right. In that, in in, in the way, right. As a, as a person, as somebody who is like both protective as well as vengeful and like how that plays into what's happening in the world around her. And she sees it more as like a way of of people to like kind of deny the world around, around them because she, she talks a lot about actually how people purposefully blind themselves to what's happening. And that's why a lot of people are unprepared for life outside of their communities. It's people just hanging on to that idea of like, it'll get better. It'll get better, but we don't know how, but it'll get better. And so she Mm -hmm. sees the, the Christian God and, and actually like all the, the religions as kind of like aiding that. And so she doesn't agree with those ideas. And that's why she says that she begins kind of looking for something that makes sense to her. She says that the religion doesn't make sense. So she's looking for something that does. This is what I'll tack on though. I'm not going to go dig the quote unless we really need to like dig into specifics, but that's why in the back half, she finally meets a character who, well, all the characters begin to challenge her and ask her because she's trying to convert them, which is, I thought was probably the most interesting part of the whole story was those little dialogue bits. Yeah. It's just another thing, though, that I was like, man, more of this, please. And like, I bet the next book has to deal with some fallout and people changing their minds and trying to tweak her own messages and whatever. It just the one character basically said something like 
why you're stating just a basic truth. Why does it have to be a religion at all? Why yeah. not just say this is a thing we need to understand? And I, I mean, other than, and I don't remember her answer, but if her answer wasn't something other than basically, well, indoctrination is more powerful than just saying a truth, then like admit that or, or say that you know, I, there's just, there are things about religion and the potency of it that can be unpacked. This novel just did not unpack them. And that's, yeah, I don't know. Again, don't want to project false expectations. The thing that I'm, I'm on my bingo card, I've said that about eight times, but <laughs> it, it just felt like another thing where th- it edged up to it, where I was like, oh, this is finally, there's some challenge and some pretty reasonable questions being asked that this 17 year old can kind of answer, but not really. And that's fair enough. I just don't know if I wanted the 17 year olds like gestating this idea novel. I think I would rather see the 35 year olds. I actually have converts now, but things are becoming twisted version of events, I suppose. Yeah. So uh, to answer your original question about, mm-hmm. yeah. so it was Travis. It was the, the guy who. Oh, uh, fitting enough. <laughs> so yes, it's That's Travis. Me. Who's, That's my role. <laughs> who's married to Natividad and they have the baby Dominic. Oh yeah. The baby. Yeah. Yeah. So he asked her why personify change by calling it God. Since change is just an idea. Why not call it that? Just say change is important. And she says, because after a while it won't be important. People forget ideas. They're more likely to remember God, especially when they're scared or desperate. So yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly I think what it, you had originally said, which was, oh, because it's right. not. Yeah. Yeah. It has to be more, it has to take deeper root and be more of a primal, like yeah. invoke some kind of fear and dedication and loyalty. I get it. And so I suppose, again, what I'm just hoping for is a more explicit pushback on that or more elaboration. Again, I just don't think, I think again, and if you look at the way the novel structured and the different questions that different characters pose and throw, it, it's a, such a good gamut of like, there's that person who's taking like a logical, I don't know, argumentative approach. There's a person who is just a non-believer because of a past, like because of past damage done to them. Mm-hmm. There's a person who is just like indifferent and uncaring and is like, well, if you care for me, I'll believe in you. Tell me what to do. You know? So yeah. there, there is this, and if you go back to your disciples analysis too, I think that holds up well. If you were to like look at each character's reaction, there is this kind of rainbow gamut of reactions to this religion she's trying to peddle. And so I think I appreciated that too. It, it's again, probably the part in the second half of the text that I enjoyed the most was just, here all these different kind of reactions to this thing she's trying to found. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I just don't, I, I suppose it's another element of the text this time, not stylistic though, this time just content, I guess, but that felt fine, but not having a ton of depth yet, or it, it hints at certain events or hints that things could change or, and then it just doesn't go super deep on any of it. But I think it made for interesting reading and as a setup, it became, yeah, I like a, it was an enjoyable enough thing to experience. I'm not sure if you reacted that way. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And uh, I was just thinking too, who do you think would be Judas among all the characters? Who would be Judas? Probably, well, I mean, in the in this story, it's clearly the final person they pick up who's the most skittish with the child, the man yeah, who Grayson. is an empath and he figures her out as well. Yeah, yeah. So clearly him, but in the end, none of them betray them, do they? One of them nope. betrays him on accident by sleeping through a shift, right? One of the sisters. Yeah, I think that was uh, Allie. Yeah, but if if it's setting up that kind of uh, Christian-adjacent 
allegory or I don't know, whatever illusion, then this novel didn't pay it off. I suppose, again, another thing in later novels, um, the Ben Cole one would be the most obviously egregious if that, you know, if that's where the novels went to. Mm-hmm. I, ju- I can't imagine that because of his age. You know, I imagine yeah. if the sequel ages the characters and, and pushes time ahead or skips, I don't know what that would mean for him. So he, you know, since he'd be pretty up there in age. That's a good question, though. I don't know. That was the other thing is there. It was another thing that felt okay, but breezed over is just the way the group clicked together. There wasn't a ton of intra group conflict or at least nothing that lasted for more than a couple pages kind of stuff. She's a I think this is, again, to her characterization, I think. She's kind of a decent peacemaker and is a pretty reasonable leader. They look up to her quickly and they mm-hmm. everyone seems to kind of fall in line. So I'm not really sure. Did you have a reading on that or was there some uh, inter- intergroup conflict that stood out as, I don't know, intriguing to you? Uh, not really. I-, I thought that Grayson would be maybe the most, most obvious just because he is the most um, untrusting and, and hostile. Um, yeah, right. But I, don't know, I thought that the group did seem to click together pretty easily, but also I think that was a result of the environment. Like you, you either Mm -hmm. like throw your lot in with somebody or you don't and you, you know, possibly get murdered. And and the text makes it extremely clear that they, that she does, that they're almost kind of an exception because they're reaching out, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. why everyone who joins is reluctant to join. Mm -hmm. And so it is another element that makes her exceptional and kind of adds to the religious undertones of the whole endeavor. Right. And so, you know, again, thematically, I think that works. She's clearly, you know, she's a builder in that sense and is clearly able to start to piece something together. I think, yeah, I think you're reading again, if this were to be a reading or, you know, if I had to put together, an analysis in a, a Jesus and disciples way. I think that would make for probably the richest reading of this text. When And I think in her universe, how she imagined it, that's kind of what this is then, right? It's like yeah. the foundational explanatory, here's how the band got together text. Any final quotes before we jump into the uh, critical assistance corner? Any final quotes you want to talk about? No, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. I think we did our justice to the uh, to the stylings of it. I, you'll notice we. I guess we didn't explicitly talk about this, but uh, maybe my final question then: Did you enjoy one half of it more than the other? Because I, I, that's I didn't want to spoil that when we spoke in the previous weeks about because it takes such a dramatic turn, right? When they when she leaves, mm-hmm. I I think I enjoyed the second half more just because of her testing herself and the interactions and all that kind of stuff. Um, did you have a strong feeling one way or the other? Do you feel like the book really changed in any significant way? I think. So for me, I I actually enjoyed both parts of it um, yeah. equally because I looked at it as like the first half. So when she's in the community, that was the, the story building and the character building. That was the world building part of it. And so I really enjoyed that because I was like, man, this is like a, an interesting world that she's creating. And, and, and I like Lauren as a character and the psychology of Lauren and, and of Earthseed. And then the second half mm-hmm. is like the, the adventure part, the movement part, the part where she's getting things done. And so it was, it was almost like two different readings for me. So I liked yeah, them both equally yeah. and I found it hard to kind of compare. The only thing really that mm-hmm. kind of tied it all together was that, you know, it was written by Lauren this whole time and, and the style doesn't really change. No, and I didn't think so either. I, I just felt like the... Because they were meeting new people 
it felt a little less summarized this family's backstory to me, just mm-hmm. stylistically in terms of how they she put it together. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that made me enjoy the second half more or something, but the first half I thought was, you know, and again, the way it has that slow, you know, it's the slow path to failure, the slow way down. Yeah. I thought that worked well. You know, it's just creeping, these creeping anxieties and these creeping problems. Mm-hmm. I thought the way the narrative discarded characters that was kind of, like I don't, when her brother and her father both die or presumably die, there's just not. I guess again, it's it's a pretty practical journal she's writing, but there there wasn't a ton of farewell there. It was it, yeah. the the book really moves on. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that bothered me or what. I just felt like I noticed it, and I guess I suppose it fits thematically. Yeah, as as a character, I mean, she points out that her mom is like in incon- her stepmother is inconsolable and is kind of like yeah. looking, giving her the the side glance because she's and Lauren states in the diary like, oh, I I just noticed that my my dad isn't crying over Keith, but neither am mm-hmm. I, right? So she also yeah, yeah. is very closed off emotionally from her family. It's the god of change. Change or change or die. I think it's it's a it's an it's an idea so broad that it can truly explain anything. So there you go. <laughs> it yeah. has that religiousness or that religiosity to it that mm-hmm. uh, you happen to have something that can explain everything. So way to go. Uh, things change uh, <laughs> and they end. Um, let's jump to the critical aim corner. This is when we call in some assistance from critical pieces, essays, analysis, whatever. I pulled two. I pulled some quotes from a New Yorker piece from 2017, and then a. Los Angeles Review of Books piece. Uh, did you pull anything differently or did you find anything else to read up on this? I um, actually just pulled um, a couple of quotes from the foreword in our copy by cool. N.K. Jemison, who's a, another sci-fi writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And probably the, I don't know, at this point, the foremost black female writer of science fiction in the United States. I, yeah. And fantasy, I suppose we should say. Yeah, she's she's well-renowned and, you know, respected and well-known. The only thing from the New Yorker one I'm going to mention quickly, then I'll start us off. Um, They have a quote about comparing it to other dystopian things. And like, basically the point is this one is weirdly more accurate than any of them. Fair enough. Yeah, that's, that is probably true. It should gain consciousness in the, in the public. That's fine. But the thing I wanted to focus on was this quote that said, In Butler's prognosis, humans survive through an intricate logic of interdependence. Soon after leaving her family's walled neighborhood, Lauren discerns that her natural allies are other people of color, including mixed-race couples, since they are likely to become targets of white violence. Several of the migrants who join Lauren's pack and the community she later establishes, Acorn, turn out to be sharers, the term for people with hyper-empathy. I didn't like this quote because it did not feel the logic did not feel intricate to me. It was survival mm-hmm. logic and and like empathy. It, like again, the, it definitely comes up that they are safer to travel together because of their racial makeup. Right. But the reason that she approaches that mixed couple was because of the child and because they get attacked by a dog. Right. Like I don't. I think later she observes that it's helpful that that is true or that, that they, I mean, they tell her about their background and, you know, their own histories and everything. I just didn't, I read that quote and thought, and then the other thing about the sharers, that, that isn't why she picked them up either. When she picks them up, she does not know that. And Mm -hmm. so I just, I didn't think it was as intricate as that quote made it out to be. We, we don't pull the critical quotes to like disagree with them. Um, but I just, yeah, I read that and thought I, that would not be my analysis of this story. I, it's more like it fell into place. Not like she made it into place. Yeah, it was, I mean, there, the reason for most of the pickups were the children. It was all about uh, vulnerability because the two sisters who did not have children, 
the reason they joined the group was because they were trapped under a building and they, yeah, needed to yeah, be they were almost dead. Yeah. yeah so it's and, this, the vulnerability that attracts Lauren. It's not, I think. Yeah. And they were, and that. they were white as well. Right. Yeah. I think the, so. The okay. two sisters were white. Yeah, they were. And, and they were also, um, they were sex trafficked. Is that yep. a verb? I can. Okay. Well, anyway, that, that they were in that life or were forced into it by their father. And so, you know, she does wilt or wilt, uh, quilt, build this quilt. What's the verb for making a quilt? Weave. <laughs> Weave. I don't, <laughs> they quilt. I'm out of my yeah. element. To quilt there is, we go. is also. <laughs> that was some word salad, man. It's late night. You, you can tell we're recording this at 11 p.m. <laughs> anyway, word salad. No, she, she weaves together this quilt of people that have they're all traumatized except for oddly maybe Bancoli has the the lost family never mind but anyway yeah they all have this intense trauma so anyway to me that the intricacies of how it fell into place were it wasn't that intricate at first it becomes so but i didn't find it to be like she had some profound vision of putting together the right makeup or something it's basically just you know having human empathy or anything um so that was the only quote i wanted to share from that one anything from the intro what do you have any anything for us to consider sure um so nk jemison in in this forward was talking about like how uh reading the parable series has um impacted her life um over the course of her life because she's read it three different times um specifically as a sci-fi writer um so i will quote her for a couple of sentences just really quickly here Um, as an examination of racial identity development the story doesn't work at all lauren is basically born knowing that racism is systemic and that as someone born at multiple intersections of marginalization black disabled female poor she is doomed if she doesn't work every angle possible however parable of the sower works beautifully as an examination of how smart resistance function so here she's saying like if you're looking for um a a deep dive into a a uniquely black experience you're not necessarily going to get that here but what you will see is just a, a general idea of resisting um Mm-hmm. the the negative effects of the world that you're born in and and how like waiting it out in some aspects and then taking action is all about timing and stuff like that so right right aspect and then she goes on to talk about uh science fiction um genre she says what we have touched has changed the sff genre uh, genre has improved slightly but what we have changed has changed us in turn. I and other marginalized writers must be constantly braced for internet harassment, death threats, and campaigns to make science fiction racist again. And as science fiction reflects its present, the same ugliness afflicts our society on the macro scale. Butler does not appear to have intended the parable novels to be a guidebook, and yet they are. That's true for all of the most powerful science fiction novels. They offer not only accurate visions of the future, but also suggestions for coping with the resulting changes. So I thought that was interesting where she points out, first of all, I, d- I didn't realize um, before reading this, like that science fiction um, was necessarily like racist in its depictions and, and stuff like that. But like, I get, yeah, that does make sense after reading that. Well, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. The, the, Yes, that that's where post-colonialism, good criticism of that kind can open up a lot of sci-fi, I think, just because yeah. it's it's the classic thing of like, 
it can't be racist, it's bugs. And it's like, yeah. no, it can be if you write about the bugs in a certain way. It's right. I mean, it's all it's in a lot of and that's where fantasy and sci-fi become such a sticking point, right? Like the orcs and Tolkien can't be racist. They're not humans. And it's like, okay, but did you read this sentence? It, it sounds like it was copy pasted from some KKK pamphlet. Like, it, <laughs> you know, it, it, and that's where you have to do a little bit of, of subtextual reading or, you know, interpolate analyze some things with some help or whatever. But yeah. um, no, it's a, it's a good point that I think, yeah, for, for people who view like genre fiction as just p- playgrounds for silly fun, I think, then that's an easy thing to cast aside. But if mm-hmm. you take it even an iota seriously, then it th- those questions have to be asked pretty quickly, I think, yeah. for a lot of like fantasy and sci-fi stories. Elves, man, like <laughs> like in every sci-fi or fantasy story, elves are like such a racially cast aside or d- there's so many things with elves that you could analyze in terms of racial expectations and p- putting them on different groups throughout history and like that. Yeah, it brings its own burdens. Anyway, didn't mean to hijack that, and I did. No, so that's sorry. great. Yeah, yeah. I think there's I, a lot to that for sure. I had I did not grow up reading fantasy or science fiction. It, it's only actually mm-hmm. the past couple of years that I've I've actually delved into some science fiction. So yeah, yeah. I I was not exposed to those ideas. So um, I, I found that really interesting, and um, I thought it was interesting that she said that the parable novels are a kind of guidebook. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. how I feel about that <laughs> as a statement. Um, I think that it serves as a as a very valid warning of what could possibly happen because the things that bring about this dystopian society, this this apocalypse, post apocalyptic society, almost is is are things that are happening today. So I think it's mm-hmm. it, she Butler is obviously very insightful as far as like <laughs> predicting the uh the downfalls of of our society right now but um I yeah don't know. i don't know and if this I think, is necessarily a guidebook well and i think too it's it's best guidebook or predictive qualities are not in the hyper specific hyper literal it i think it's weird there's two my, i'm of two minds on this you can look at this book and award it kudos for being so weirdly prescient in the things it predicted going wrong and that's fine i to me that's just a less interesting thing than i could what we kind of brought up at the beginning which is i think there are lessons of human behavior and history in here that are more subtle and better observed than just like oh wow she predicted about the water huh okay i guess we don't have much water any like part of that to me doesn't feel as much of a literary accomplishment i guess and that's and that's why i always back up again that's why i always come up hard against like the more science based sci-fi cuz that mm-hmm. does just feel like physics handbook predictions sometimes to me where it's like you probably could have if you were like an environmentalist or like an ecology student in the 1950s like you probably could have also predicted that water will be a huge issue in the next 200 years of human life like it that, and that's where to me, it's like, it's not cool or interesting to me personally as just a reader that she predicted that water would be an issue and that, you know, that like police can turn into the mob. Like these are just well-observed truths of the world and human history or whatever. I think mm-hmm. the the way she shows its devolution and the, yeah, the kind of pace of that in the story is the good observation. That would be to me, the handbook thing would be a little broader about how to make a community, how to endure. It's yeah, and so th- that's where I split because I feel like 
I think of this with Ray Bradbury too. Like you, you've read Fahrenheit 451, right? I have, yeah. Yeah, I figured. And a lot of people read that or like when I had students read it would remark on, it's really cool that he invented Bluetooth and he just like imagined that would be a thing like or like AirPods, you know, it's like people in those stories just basically have AirPods and those didn't really exist then or they had TVs and TV didn't really exist in that same way. You know, it was Mm -hmm. like he. So anyway, I think you can always look at those things and basically. But to me, that conversation is very brief. It's basically to point at a thing and be like, oh, cool. She Oh, how impressive she did that. Um, I think the lessons here in terms of, though, the human behaviors and stuff, I don't know if I'd say guidebook, but I think there's a lot of good truth in here, though, too. So, I, yeah. you know, I come down maybe neutrally positive on that quote in particular. But, yeah, I don't I, I don't it's the thing that it can exhaust me with sci fi. It feels like the same kind of fanboyism that happens with the comic book kind of fantasy stuff where. It's, it's about the Easter egg, but not about what it means. It's kind of the same thing here of like, you could look at this. And that's why in the New Yorker piece, I just kind of shrugged that the compliment of like, well, hand, Handmaid's Tale is really popular, but it didn't predict anything that accurately. You know, like we don't literally live, live with harems of women right now, but this right. book has like literal things that are literally happening. And I look at that and shrug. It's just like, okay, I mean, but w- what are the core ideas and subtle messages and observations about human behavior and societal interaction. Like that is to me, the more interesting thing, you know, Mm -hmm. the the actual literal, did it happen this way or not? That feels like the job of a, you know, of a scientist actually like that, you know, they they can (laughs) do that work and predict that now. So anyway, that, you know, long winded take on that, but I, I think I do see it. Yeah. Guidebook is strong, but I I think the observations are pretty, pretty good though. I'm not sure if yeah. you felt that way too. I did. Yeah. I thought that um, Lauren in, in particular is like really insightful and, and also uh, Butler yeah. in her descriptions of like how people have reacted in this world. Mm-hmm. I think that that's yeah. pretty spot on. Yeah. And the, yeah, the, the way they kind of turtle up, but yep. kind of casually, you know, it's like they do it, but they don't know how to fully commit to it because there's kind of a world out there and mm-hmm. then there's kind of not it's, it feels very limbo, and again, it feels very slow and crumbling. And I, th- yeah. I thought that narratively worked really well. I thought it was really well observed. And yeah, yeah. I suppose I could phrase it this way with the long tangent I just went on would be, if I were to recommend this to someone, it would never be because I could say, she wrote this 30 years ago, and look at all the stuff she got right, like a tarot card reading. Like, who cares? I don't, <laughs> she could have gotten it all wrong and the book could still be amazing. You know, right. it's to, again, to me, that's just always going to be the least interesting thing. Um, I think it, it's coherent though and, and good, but it, yeah, I, I struggled because the New Yorker brought that up explicitly. They're just like, you know, like there are other worlds that have kind of come true, but this one has a very strange amount of things it's checking off. And, um, mm-hmm. I think its merits are just beyond that, I guess, is what I would say. It doesn't, this is not a work of prophecy, you know, so it doesn't have to be held up to that. I do want to pull one quote. I pulled a bunch from the LA um, Review of Books piece, which I actually really loved reading because the premise of it was fascinating. It was that the a bunch of academics got to read the manuscripts for the third book that was never published or finished. Mm-hmm. And so there's just tons of interesting tidbits in there about the book series anyway. 
But there was one quote I wanted to read um, because it was about her work in general. And it says, as her published novels demonstrate, Octavia Butler was no utopian. In fact, she rejected utopian thinking in the strongest possible terms. She believed human beings were biological organisms with sharp instincts for self-preservation that had been honed by evolution over innumerable millennia. She believed evolution had made us clever but mean, creative but selfish, and short-sighted. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like that reading holds up uh, compared to this book? I know very little of her other work. So, and that statement is from an academic who has presumably read all of her work. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. He, well, he's like a professor of like science fiction literature or whatever. Yeah. I'm just yeah. assuming, I don't, you know, I don't know the man, but anyway, I'm sure he's well read <laughs> in it. But yeah. do you think that reading holds up well with this book? How do you think For that sure. matches? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Did you find them creative but selfish? What about the creativity aspect? They, there's a kind of doldrums like brain on the people in this book. Like mm-hmm. they all kind of aren't the most creative ones. The pyros really like, yeah. Are any of them especially creative? I find that to be an interesting adjective. Yeah, that's I'm trying to think of who I would consider to be um, creative. I guess perhaps what would be creative is like the ways that they survive. And right, perhaps they're, yeah, the they're crafty. That, yeah, they're crafty. And also the way that they um, are able to uh, manipulate themselves into believing that things will work out in the end. So creative, mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. in the lies that they tell to themselves and the lies that they tell to each other for comfort. Yeah, and they're clever in, in their short-sightedness in that they're desperate for resources, so they will try yeah. schemes to get them. I think the short-sightedness is one of the better, I think one of the perfect fits for this book. This is a book of short-sighted people you know just short-sighted doing short and selfish yeah mm-hmm. yeah doing things short-sightedly in a, in a kind of maybe aggressive and misguided manner or something like that yeah there were, again i would recommend that piece wholeheartedly if you i'm sure if you just i don't have the title unfortunately that's my bad but if you google los angeles review of books and then the parable of the sower you'll find it it's um i thought well worth reading any final critical assistance we we want to include here amanda anything uh left from the critics to throw out there um no but i did want to point out that in our um copies there was actually a, an mm-hmm. end piece where there's a conversation with octavia butler where she talks oh, okay. about um actually parable of of the sower specifically and like how she created the story which i found interesting so um if i you did guys read are interested that. In that yeah you i did? did not read the question oh, guide but i read the interview is it the one where she meant talks about the pyro drug being a, it's kind of like she sees the rise of drug use, especially yep. heavier drugs like crack and heroin mm-hmm. and it, that, and the cocaine boon in the eighties and everything. And yep. yeah, that's, it's weird. We just went this whole thing and didn't talk about the pyro stuff. <laughs> I, we, did we ever mention that? I, maybe once. I, I think maybe once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's in the novel, but if you've listened to this whole thing, you probably knew that cause you read it or, you yeah. know, you're just curious and now you know, but there's, that's a crucial element of the story too. Another thing though, that, um, would I throw that up as underdeveloped? I don't know. Her brother, I thought, actually gave the best little back. It's, yeah. again, kind of teased out in his relationship. Like, you never know fully what he's gotten into, but there's enough clues. That that felt mystery-like in that way. I don't know mm-hmm. if you felt that way. The way he would dip in and out. Yeah, it, I think it was meant to, right? She's It's to keep mm-hmm. her from actually understanding what the outside world is, too. So when she actually yeah. does encounter it, it's like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah, it was bad, yeah. but not this bad. <laughs> yeah, and the intensity of it happens. 
the the book and its brisk pacing, like you've hit on the staccato nature, I think works best at the moments when it does have to aggressively pivot because it feels it feels abrupt sometimes. Like the yeah. happenings in the story, they re- it really does kind of move at that in that way. Mm-hmm. So overall, this is not a book review show, but I feel like I'm in that brain. I was just about to ask you if you would recommend this to someone. I would <laughs> do you want to review it quick? <laughs> Yeah. What do you think? What would you say about it? What would you say to recommending this to someone? Um, I would just say like, if you're interested in, um, in the psychology of like, of the world of, of, of people who are in a world that's falling apart around them, right? I mean, it, people who are succumbing to disease, people who are unhappy with the government, people who are, you know, all these other things. This would be a great read just just from, I think, that perspective to see what what could happen and what life could possibly be like if we don't make changes. And it's, yeah. I, I just thought that it was really a great idea and a, and a great story. If you really want to, you, the listener, not you, Amanda, but if you, listener, really want to lean in, I think this is a tough recommendation at the moment because of the state of the world, and that's fine. Read the fiction that, you know, that you want to, but if you really did want to lean in, I would say go find some, there's like some pretty intense, maybe even nihilistic nonfiction out there, but if you really want to stare down current events in an intense way, like The Uninhabitable Earth, I finished that last year you should read that like that should just be required humanity reading at this point i mean if you really want to try and understand the directions of things and kind of like what big science thinks of of current trends and issues and climate things anyway so there's there's nonfiction out there too but yeah i think i think it just is a fictional story right in the simplest Mm -hmm. terms i enjoyed this yeah i'd recommend it 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 would be a good one for me to just say like pretty low stakes quote unquote sci-fi it's really in that speculative camp it's really not even sci-fi it's just like here's an imagined this is such a good contrast to other dystopias that we have which have become so high concept this is so low concept like you can immediately understand this not that the world building isn't good but you will know this world i mean you will know it because it's it is the world and so yeah i think it makes for a pretty easy recommendation Final we thoughts, had, Amanda. Yeah, go ahead. We had um, we had talked about before the pod too. Is is that this was not like Lord Dumpy either? A lot of the time, oh, with, no, no. Uh, Post apocalyptic literature, it's just like paragraphs and paragraphs of just let me explain exactly what this yep. world is like. But this one, yeah. she does a great job of just like kind of weaving in elements of the world without you feeling like you're just it's exposition heavy or anything like that. And I think she does a, a yeah. wonderful job of giving us a clear idea, the reader, a clear idea of what the world is like without having to just like beat it over our heads. It's a sincere compliment, like for real to say that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would agree with it too, it, that it feels very natural and interwoven. And uh, the fact that there's no, you know, pages of text just explaining here's the president and every, you know, it's very subtle. And I think it was, it was well done for that reason, for sure. Excellent. Okay. Well, those, I think, are our final thoughts on this episode of A Book Club. This was, again, on The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. We will continue to focus and put ahead, put forward Black American writers and African American writers in our book club episodes. Speaking of that, I did want to mention... For those listening, the next book we're going to do, which I'm going to promote a little more aggressively on social media stuff to get people more aware before we do the episode. But anyway, we are going to cover a novel next called Sing, Unburied Sing by Jessamyn Ward 
who has won now two consecutive National Book Awards, I think, for novels that she's written. So pretty acclaimed. It was written in 2017. You can get softcover editions out there. Libraries, I'm sure, will have copies. And again, that's Sing, Unburied Sing by Jessamyn Ward. We will post that episode in the beginning of next month. We've been trying to stick to... Well, not really stick to anything other than the beginning. <laughs> we we're not putting them out on a certain day or time. Um, but if you check the feed in the front half of the month, there will definitely be a new book club episode. Just look for the title. Uh, in the feed, they are titled book club instead of book review. So hopefully, I've always hoped that that listing is clear enough that people can differentiate, but I'll leave that up to you guys to decide. Um, thanks as always for listening. Until next time, we will see you between the books, the sheets, the pages. We'll see you.